Leslie Medine, John Esterly, and Ellen Schneider, welcome to the new school. Thank you, Michael. So this is an interesting conversation to have with three good friends and colleagues. Uh, Leslie Medine is the executive director of On the Move and has created a project called the Democracy Zone in Napa. John Esterly is the executive director of the Whitman Institute, which is a foundation in San Francisco that focuses on dialogue, critical thinking, and civic engagement. And Ellen Schneider is the founder and executive director of Active Voice, which works at the intersection of film and civic engagement. She's the former executive director of POV, which has been the longest-running independent documentary series on public television. Is that still running? Oh, yeah. yeah, good. So the reason we've come together is that John and Ellen and I share a strong interest in the work that Leslie has been doing with On the Move and the Democracy Zone in Napa, and for that matter, her work before that. Uh, uh, the Whitman Institute has supported her work, and Ellen Schneider is active on developing with Leslie a media project that will, in effect, be a form of outreach for your work in Napa. So, Leslie, to begin with, what is the Democracy Zone in Napa? Um, so, the Democracy Zone is a, a concept, but it's also a place. It's a very small physical place of a neighborhood called the McPherson neighborhood uh, in Napa. It has um, it's a little neighborhood with about 65% Latinos and 35% white folks. It has uh, 6,000 people in the neighborhood. It's about a half a mile in, you know, radius. Um, and it um, has 6,000 people, 2,000 of whom are children and youth. Um, I've been doing work in this neighborhood for the last three years, which is a whole youth-led initiative about changing the outcomes for all young people in that neighborhood. And we decided what would happen if we created a, a democracy zone out of this neighborhood. And to make it really simple, um, we uh, finally got it down to, because people always say, what is it? You know, that sounds interesting. What's a democracy zone? And so we've got it down to a democracy zone is a place where people lead. And that stands for um, listen to what matters to others, express your thoughts and feelings, act on behalf of youth and children, and decide together. So the idea is it's not some regular sort of government, or we haven't seceded from the state or the city or whatever. It really is um, a place where people come out about things that matter to them to talk about those things and then take action around those things. And lots of them have to do with children and youth. So, so what are, give us an example of, actually let's start with a story. What, tell me about a young person in the democracy zone that is an example of the kind of uh, person you're working with. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> uh, there's so many different stories. Um, well, I work, I specifically work with, um, very directly with about 120 young people who are middle school through high school. So 6th graders through 12th graders. Um, about 80% 80, 80 of those young people are Latino. First generation, um, their parents moved from Mexico, and almost all their parents are um, monolingual Spanish. Um, we also work with some young people who are white, who are in the neighborhood, and some other kids of, also of color, but very few. So mostly it's Latino and a few white kids. Um, and most of the, and then we're connected also to an elementary school, the largest elementary school in Napa, which is 650 
kids. 90, is that the McPherson School? McPherson Elementary School, mm-hmm. which is also 92% Latino. All their parents are monolingual Spanish, all low income uh, for the most part. But most of the young people I work with at the high school level are kids who are not in, uh, I wouldn't really consider them per se to be high risk. We're not talking about, for the most part, juvenile justice kids or you know, whatever. Uh, but they're young people who are vague, you know, sort of bumbling their way through high school. They're not causing anybody any trouble. They're not doing anything particularly interesting. Um, and they're not really, they haven't been given up until the time they in, got involved with us, they haven't been given any opportunities to think about what are all the possibilities for your life. So um, I'm thinking about, I was thinking about a kid I was sitting with um, uh, three days before he graduated high school. And this is a child who, when he came into the Leadership Academy, spent most of his time with his head on the table um, and sort of not interested in anything and, you know, everything was whatever and, you know, whatever. And so three days before he graduated, I was sitting with him and, um, oh, I know what happened. Uh, We were having an end-of-the-year presentation for parents, but his mother was in Mexico and his father was working. And when I came in the door, and this is a kid who hardly used to talk to me, uh, when I came in the door that night, he said to me, um, he said, um, could my, you know, my parents aren't here. Could you be my mom? You know, could you be my mom for the night? And I said, okay, what, what does that entail? You know, what, what do I do to be your mom? And he said, well, you'd have to sit with me, and when I go over my portfolio, you have even... And I said, oh, you know, I'd be proud. And he made me a name tag and said, you know, uh, Le- Leslie Jose's mom. And, um, and we sat together, and he went, he showed me this portfolio. You know, all the other kids were doing it with their parents and whatever else it was. And, um, and so I started to look at his uh, reflective essay, which was extremely well written. You know, this is a kid who yeah, you never would know. Um, and then there was a whole piece of the thing about, you know, what, what are you going to do next? And he told me, um, well, you know, because of my involvement with the Democracy Zone and everything, um, you know, I never thought of myself as a leader, but oh, I, think, I think I am. You know, I think I am. And I'm going to go to Napa Valley uh, College, which this is a kid who was never going anywhere. And um, I'm thinking about being an engineer. You know, that's what, that's what I think I'm going to do. And so that's an example. And I could go on about, you know, there are hundreds of examples. Of so you say so you work personally with about 120 kids. 120 plus. kids. And then, and then other, other kids who are, and, and our, our staff are working with lots of also elementary age kids and other So other what's kids. the total population of kids that you and the staff work with? Uh, we work with, a pro, um, let's see, well, whatever is 120 and 650, about 770 kids. Uh, because we work very closely with all the school staff who are working also with the elementary age kids. Mm-hmm. Now, development of young leaders seems to be a, a really core focus of your life work. Is mm-hmm. that that's so? That's so. Mm-hmm. And have you come to a philosophy of organizing or development that you can describe that guides your work with helping young people develop leadership qualities? Well, I, um, I, I work with... Uh, you know, 14 to 18-year-olds, but I also work with 18 to 21-year-olds or 25-year-olds, and then another. So I'm working with three developmental age groups, and I think about them all What's the very differently. The youngest is normally about 14. Okay. Um, and so if I'm looking at adolescents, um, and they're, um, and, and when I'm thinking about adolescents from a developmental standpoint and in terms of leadership, uh, I think the most important thing I think about for them is that... Um, uh, you know, one of the reasons that adolescents are so always into drama of one kind or another, you know, they create it and they thrive on it and they drive everybody crazy with their drama, um, is because that's the way they get to think. So 
I, you know, I know a lot about affect and cognition. So if you, it, when you're feeling something, whatever, whatever it could be, uh, tremendous excitement, sadness, anger, whatever it might be, it literally gets the synapses in the brain firing. You know, so that cognition can take place because lots of times with teenagers, they don't look like anything's going on. You know, you never ever say to a teenager, you know, what were you thinking? You know, it's not, it's not a good idea to go down that road with teenagers. Um, because mo mostly they're going to tell you they, they don't know what they weren't thinking. I mean, they, don't, they, weren't, they weren't thinking about thinking, you know. Um, so, but if you're going to create leadership with adolescents, something big, emotional, you know, literally almost like a, a physical thing has to be happening in order to get them to start thinking about things. So I spent a lot of time thinking about what is going to be the, what are going to be some of the things that will capture their attention and make them feel something that's pretty uh, big. So give us an example. Um, well, an example would be um, uh, an example would be uh, talking to our. We we live in a rather strange community. Napa's sort of strange in my mind, very different than Oakland, San Francisco, San Jose. Somebody said it's like a, a coal mining community in West Virginia with lots of amenities. One can think of it like that. Um, it's, it's, we, live, we have two worlds uh, in Napa, really, truly, uh, absolutely divided. You almost never see people together. So we have the Latino world, of which now Napa's 50%, and we have a white world. Um, and uh, the twain never meet. And so... Um, one of the things uh, that that is important for young people to be able to talk about is their experience of growing up in that in that community. Uh, what, something that would be very emotional for almost every kid I ever work with is talk about uh, undocumented. You know, who who knows that someone who's undocumented? If you you know that conversation gets people rolling. Um, I mean, lots of conversations get kids rolling, but anything that has to do with wonder why it is that. Um, you know, that we don't have any school principals in our community that are Latino. wonder why it is that, you know, we have almost no elected officials in our community that are Latino. Uh, wonder why it is that uh, eight out of 250 Latino kids in a high school uh, have taken the right classes to apply to college. Things like that get, get kids mm -hmm. uh, rolling, mm -hmm. um, I, I would say. Mm -hmm. although, uh, I'm, although I would also say that um, lots of our young people have been raised in families where they were really not supposed to be expressing a lot of what they felt. And school's not a place that's going to happen either. So it takes, in this work that I'm doing in this particular community, it takes a while to just figure out a way to get people to, to be able to literally speak. Now, you said that's the adolescent group. You said there are three ages that you right. think of. Right. I don't know what to do, really, with 18 to 24-year-olds. Mm -hmm. This is a, a, another a very in-between stage. Um, so 18 to 24-year-olds are a funny group, uh, although I work with lots of them. And they're a group of people who are they're no, you know, they're not teenagers. Many of them are not living in their homes anymore. They're not quite sure what to do. They haven't had enough life experience to figure out what they're truly interested in. And uh, fairly self-absorbed. Many, many, many young people are fairly self-absorbed at that age group. So I don't. I, I feel like I don't have uh, like hardly any expertise of eighteen to twenty-four year olds. I'd like to just skip to, you know, from eighteen to twenty-five and just have somebody else figure out the eighteen to twenty-four year olds. I'm not. I'm not. I. I, just, I they're an in-between group. Mm -hmm. I don't quite know what to do with the that age group. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm action-oriented, you know, mm -hmm. I like to figure out what are we going to do, mm -hmm. and that age group is not quite sure what yet they want to do, whether they're college-bound or they're working in a coffee shop or they're mm -hmm. still living at home or whatever it is. I, I, they're a funny, funny in-between group. And what's the third group? And the third group is 25 to 35-year-olds. 
who I do a lot of work with, um, and that's an age group. Uh, in, in my work, we're looking at young people who say they want to be the next public sector leaders mm -hmm. around the Bay Area. Um, that would mean leaders of government agencies, nonprofits, and school school leaders. And that group um, is a group who are definitely more focused. They've had some work experience. They're sort of knowing where they want to go, and our uh, philosophy with them is that we cannot pull apart personal, interpersonal, and professional. So we're working across, um, we're working at, at simultaneously on all those three areas of uh, skill. Great. <clears throat> now, Ellen Schneider, uh, your work um, with Active Voices, you, you decided to work with Leslie. What, what drew you to Leslie's work? Well, Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and every time I listen to her, I not only learn something, but I tend to retell your stories yeah. all the time because they're so vivid for me. Um, our work is focused on using story as a way to engage people in social justice issues. And frequently, our partners are organizations. But stories about organizations aren't necessarily what people are looking for. People are looking for stories about people. And in the conversation that you've just had, you asked her to give you some examples of the people that you work with. And we're very interested in finding the stories that, that brought people to the democracy zone mm. and telling them in such a way that others can really understand what's at stake, not only in the community of Napa, which is unique, as you described, not just because of the racial divide, but also because of the tremendous economic divide mm -hmm. and the fact that people are focused on the hospitality and wine and food industry and the people who, on the other side who are supporting it. That kind of drama and that kind of dialectic is a very useful way to engage different kinds of publics in a deeper conversation about who we are today and how we're going to live together. So in the democracy zone, because you're doing it so vividly and so deliberately, mm -hmm. we think there's a tremendous narrative there that could help people think more critically about our combined futures. Give us an example, Ellen, of another project that you've done that, where you used media mm -hmm. to really impact uh, social justice issues. Sure. Well, we have one that we're just about to launch now, which also takes place in a small town. It's a town of Shelbyville, Tennessee. Shelbyville has uh, 16,000 people, some of whom are uh, white residents who have lived there for a long time. There's an African-American community that uh, went through horrendous desegregation um, struggles. About 15 years ago, Tyson Chicken, which is the largest employer in town, was um, recruiting Mexicans to work in chicken uh, processing. And um, because there was a legal problem with the hiring of undocumented workers, more recently turned to refugee communities. So the story in Shelbyville focuses on a small group of immigrants and long-term residents who have decided they want to make their community work. They've realized that America and their small town is changing. And they formed a welcoming committee uh, to help not only reduce the tension with the economy in trouble, with a tremendous lack of understanding about who the newcomers are and why they're there, mm -hmm. and in telling the story and letting people speak for themselves, and also, as in the case of the Democracy Zone, showcasing the deliberate effort by individuals to make things work, to really grapple with the complexity. 
Didn't you show a piece of this at the last Whitman Institute yeah. Yeah. gathering? Yes. It was stunning. Thank you. It, it was really stunning. And that was one of the very earliest screenings. And mm -hmm. we've had the opportunity throughout the whole process to ask for feedback and to work with policymakers, grassroots organizers, philanthropists, and people on the front lines of these issues, how the story is unfolding for them. And as a result, it becomes a much more dynamic storytelling process. And that's what we're hoping to do with the democracy. So as you familiarize yourself more and more deeply with Leslie Ward, what is the emerging story that you see taking shape? We're still working on that because we have, in addition to telling the, the complex story of who's in this town and what makes them tick, uh, we also want the democracy zone and on the move to flourish. So we want to find a way to direct the story, not just for public appeal, but for people who will support you in the future. Mm -hmm. To help understand, I think the story you told about, you know, the, the young man whose head was on his desk uh, and, you, you know, you didn't know what was going on in there is, is usually what happens, is we don't know. We don't know what's going on in there because we don't ask and we don't have access. And through media and the intimate kind of storytelling that I really like, we begin to flesh out character and the dimension, the complexity of what really goes on in people's lives. And I think that's going to be the key to this, is really developing some of the characters, but also showing how leadership is developed and what happens when people really are facing major decisions about um, their own communities and their own lives. I know you haven't decided whether to do this as a website or a film, but I'm curious about something somebody once told me, that, that it's more powerful to tell one story than two or three. I don't know if that's true or not, but I wanted to ask you, as a filmmaker, uh, is there a rule of thumb if you're going to make, say, a, an hour-long documentary about whether it's more powerful to tell one story in depth or two or three? Mm -hmm. In other words, how does that work psychologically? Well, it's a great you? question, and I can't answer because I'm not a filmmaker. Okay. I love filmmaking, and mm -hmm. I have tremendous respect for filmmakers. It's mm -hmm. a skill that I lack. Forgive me. But I, no, 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 but it's important mm -hmm. because... Um, you ran the POV thing, yeah, so yeah, you're an it's editor. An executive producer. Yeah, but executive it's, producer. And I think it's really... It's a, it's a key distinction. Right, right. Telling stories is really hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, you happen to be, have a great skill because your mind goes that way. But for most of us, even though we may experience and observe things, the ability to kind of put it into the context and make other people see it, uh, even for visual filmmakers, is very, very difficult. And I think that observation you heard might have been someone of a certain generation. Mm -hmm. Um, for whom a, a linear story that goes into detail that has a beginning, middle, and end, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a very familiar grammar. But storytelling today is far less linear, usually, and technology enables us to spend the time, but to do it on multiple levels so that people can actually find themselves in the story. Um, and I think that's why we are envisioning a website mm -hmm. or something that's deeply web-based so not only because it makes it more accessible, it means that we could in, in open this up to lots and lots of people, some people who will never know, will never be sitting in a room like this, but also because there's, there's something that hasn't happened yet, I think, online, which is taking narrative and really putting it into a digital space in a way that really draws you in. So it's, will these kids be able to take their cell phones with their video cameras and contribute stuff online through the... Great question. Yeah. And there's so many good questions about who the storyteller should yeah. be and what the function is. Yeah. John Esterly is the executive director of the Whitman Institute. I, I want to say, uh, the Whitman Institute, I, I found, this is a parenthesis, but let me say it. Uh, I found myself 
uh, gradually um, interviewing more and more people who've been involved with the Whitman Institute. Um, and I've done, um, I think, eight, ten interviews with you, uh, Mark Gerzon, Rachel Kessler, Pia Infante, coming up one with Juanita Brown of World Cafe, um, with Ed Conboy, and now this one. And, I, and it wasn't planned. But what I discovered was that being part of the Whitman Institute community, I kept running into people I wanted to interview. And one of the things that you do as a, as a full, small foundation um, um, is that you understand what most grant makers don't understand, which is that creating community among your grantees is one of the most powerful value-added things that a grant maker can do if there's any coherence mm -hmm. in the grant making. So every, what, year and a half, two years, you do a, a gathering of your grantees, which mm -hmm. the new school has been won, and bring us together. And, and the last one that we did up in, uh, in Tamales um, was just an enormously powerful gathering where I... Uh, um, you know, met you and uh, Leslie and Ellen and um, many others. And so your foundation is the only foundation in the country with a pure focus on dialogue, critical thinking, and civic engagement, which is really what both Leslie mm -hmm. and Ellen represent. And um, so, but when I've talked to you about your grant making, you, you've often picked Leslie out as an example of some kind of what really energizes your work. So I want to ask you what it is about Leslie's work that draws you in in that way. Uh, well, first I'd probably have to uh, make the distinction that Ellen did. There, Leslie as an individual has drawn me in. But more than that, um, the approach to her work which very intentionally create spaces for dialogue and reflection, uh, both for the youth uh, at all age ranges going up, as well as the staff. And actually, that was one of the f one of the first things that really pulled me into Leslie's work was um, when she had a, was working with a program called Alternatives in Action in Alameda, <clears throat> and I was intrigued that as an organization they had intentionally created a space each week where the staff would uh, come together and uh, talk about, not about the work, and about how, what they were bringing to the work and how it was affecting them. So it wasn't a, pro a problem-solving session for the staff to go, okay, well, what do we do? That It was really to try and... Um, recognize that in our workspaces we bring our own histories and personal things going on and and that we may have things on a relational level with other staff that we're sitting on and not talking about. And so I was intrigued at that process that they were setting up. And, and, and a question she asked at the time that I it stays with me and sticks with me is one kind of, I, I think they asked as an organization, is they were as a staff, holding the youth to a lot of high standards. Okay, we want the youth taking risks, we want them learning from mistakes, we want them being authentic, and, all. and then they said, are we holding ourselves to those same standards? And it was, well, not really. 
So then it was, so what do we do about that? So then that's where the impetus for creating um, that space for reflection first started. And it's a, a model that you still, uh, that Leslie and On The Move still um, uh, follows organizationally is creating reflective dialogical space for their staff to come together. And I think why that's really important and also unusual is that I think organizations, understandably so, tend to look at opportunities for dialogue and reflection as uh, bonuses, you know, or, you know, when things are going well, well, we'll have some time for a retreat or, you know, let it, it, it's kind of an add-on. And what I have found um, for many years uh, compelling about Leslie's work, it's, it's not an add-on. Those processes are seen as the part of the engine that drives the organization. So then uh, to go out to the big picture level and, the, and linking it to the democracy zone, I think we, in general, often take that same stance towards what we mean by democracy. Well, it's something, well, okay, we vote and maybe that's it, but we don't carve out intentional space, public spaces for people to come together in a more uh, uh, dialogic space where they're actually thinking together about issues that might matter to them. Uh, now, there's, I think, it's not an over-exaggeration to say that many f- people feel our democracy's kind of broken at the moment and so and doesn't have spaces for the voice of uh, 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 residents or citizens to actually be heard. So there's a lot of experiments going on around the country and a whole field called deliberative democracy that's really trying to bring uh, people's voices uh, uh, more into the picture. And so the democracy zone, I think, is a, a, a compelling example of something happening locally. Um, and I think, uh, the, and this is where the power of story comes in, because I think a lot of people now are recognizing that if you want to not only be doing the work you're doing, which is highly valued, but if you want to impact a wider public conversation, you have to tell us. You have to tell a, a good story, a compelling story. You have to have something that's going to draw people in. So that's why I have been thrilled to see Leslie uh, and Ellen um, working together, uh, because I think uh, there's an important story to tell here, and then how it's told. Um, uh, I, I think uh, it, it's a story that has potentially a lot of uh, impact. For others, about what can happen in a community space. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Leslie, um, given that a core process piece for you is, is creating these listening circles or whatever you want to call them, what is your theory uh, and praxis of listening circles? Who influenced you in the development of your thinking, mm-hmm. and how do you describe that piece of your work? 
uh, speaking of stories, so this comes from a 15-year-old. This is, this whole thing, I actually think, started with this kid. Um, and uh, we were invited, this is many, many years ago, this is four, I don't know, long time ago, 15 years ago. We were invited to go in front of the Levi Strauss Board of Trustees. Not the, not the foundation, but the actual Board of Trustees. And they told us we had 10 minutes to tell our story. And I sat down with six kids and I said, okay, how are we going to do this? We have 10 minutes. This is it. We're not going to have a second chance. What's the story? You know? And this kid, this 15-year-old, says, um, well, I think we should tell the story of the iceberg. And the story of the iceberg was that they were fooling around the week, early, the week earlier on the computer, turning an iceberg upside down. You know? And then they brought me the picture and they said, you know, this is, and the organization we were running, uh, what, me and the kids, was called Home. And he said, this kid says, this is Home. This looks like Home. And I said, well, tell me about this. And he said, well, you know, usually with an iceberg, it, everything's under the water except a little bit is sticking up. But in, in our organization, it's the other way around. There's a little bit under the water that you actually don't see. It's private, you know, but the rest of it's like showing up. You know, you, you can see it. So I said, I said to this kid, are you telling me that we're going to spend 10 minutes of our precious time with Levi Strauss talking about the iceberg picture? I mean, are you kidding me? You know, that's, that's how we're going to go do this. And this child says to me, um, in order to do great things in the world, you must be known and know others. So I, I and you know, I, I usually was... In, Say that again, in order... In order to do great things in the world, you must be known and know others. And I was usually in sync with the divergent thinking of teenagers. I don't teenagers. understand that sentence. Help me with it. In order to do great things... In the world. Okay, whatever great might right. be, and we now yeah. define that. Okay, yeah. you must be known and know others. Oh, I'll I see. I'll go on I to say it. what he said. Okay, I got so, it. So Sorry. I, so I'm starting to argue with him about what, what are you talking about? That's not true. So I said, I said, that's not true. You know, you can sit down with a team of people, you have a task, you get it done. And, you know, as long as everybody knows what their role is and what the, what the task is and what the outcome is, you know, you can get it done. And he said to me, that's true. You can get a task done. But in order to do great things in the world, you must be known and know others. And so I, and I, and in the meantime, the next morning, we're supposed to go do this presentation. And we still don't know what we're going to do. And um, I go home completely frustrated. I can't understand what he's saying. And um, as I thought about it, when I went home that morning, I had been with a bunch of teachers I didn't know, you know, from the high school that was near, you know, we were working with. And I, we had a task to do. I didn't know them. They didn't know me, you know. And it, and it turned out that it was a, you know, we went through the exercise of whatever the task was, but it was, it was meaningless. It didn't feel like anything. It didn't, you know, nothing happened, really. So that's really where this thing about being known and knowing others began for me, to really think about that, in addition to the fact that, in, in relation to what John was saying, was we were spending a lot of time whining about the kids, and then began to think, well, if we believe, which we did, that we were a mirror, you know, when you're, you know, when you're really tired, and you, if you have kids, you're really tired, and you go home, and the kids like, they seem like they're really bad on the night that you're especially tired, um, you know, it, it, Somehow we, we are mirroring each other, um, and I and I think that's so. That's where we began about this thing about being seen, and I was thinking about it this morning, and I've never been able to explain why this is true. I only know it is true, that when we become vulnerable in in that we allow ourselves to be seen, the other person can see themselves. So it's like mylar, 
I was trying to think, you know, Mylar? You know, that, it's, it's like Mylar. Mylar is that stuff on glasses oh, yeah. that looks like a mirror, but so you can actually Forgive me see for being so obtuse today. No, no problem. <laughs> I seem to be uh, slow may, on it the may, It may be me. It may be me. My metaphor is maybe just too far See, I'm away. showing my vulnerability. In <laughs> and now I can see myself. Um, so I don't understand how it happens. I only know it's true. So we often think that if we're vulnerable, then other people can see us, which of course they can. But the more important thing that happens is that somebody can see themselves when you allow yourself to be vulnerable. And uh, you cannot work with adolescents. You cannot effectively work with adolescents without allowing yourself to be seen. They will turn away from you, period. You know, they're looking for themselves. They're desperately looking for themselves. They're looking for themselves in everybody's, in everybody's eyes. And so if, if you can't go there, you're, you're not gonna get anything from them or with them or any of that kind of thing. So I think that the listening, um, you know, the, what, we, what we called adult reflection, which is what John was talking about, was really our attempt to say to each other, the adults who were supposed, supposedly <laughs> help coaching these kids along, um, well, what's going on with us? What are our assumptions about ourselves, about each other, about the work we're doing and all that kind of thing? Because if, if we can get to our assumptions about how we think, how we think about what we're doing, we will be more effective with each other. Um, and I think that's and that's what we continue to do, uh, to try to f go ahead. No, I was just going to add one piece of that, that what's important about that, too, is Leslie's approach is, we're talking about reflection, and it's very action-oriented. So it's very much about quickly moving into action. It's almost so. Yeah, in 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 uh, frames for innovation, you often talk about rapid prototyping. Well, you do that with community-based work. So the in the democracy zone at the moment, they they kind of quickly moved into action on how do we create a new community center. How do we start making that happen? So the youth then quickly get involved with lobbying public officials, talking to them. So the, what I, what's really different, I think, about um, Leslie's approach is it combines a very action-oriented model. With reflection. With reflection. And uh, often... It's a lot of, you know, maybe you get the action or maybe you get the reflection, but it's harder to bring those two together. And I think that when you do bring them together, it creates the possibility to uh, build and deepen relationships that lead, uh, build community, and generate a learning culture, whether it's in the organization or the community. Now, you know, Leslie, this um, all started in an uh, alternative high school on Long Island where your parents sent you as a young woman. Is that correct? That's true. Yeah. Tell us a little about the high school you went to. Um, well, I was, uh, in, I was in a regular suburban high school in ninth and 10th grade, and uh, the superintendent had an idea that high school wasn't working. Um, so you were in general? Uh, in general. Mm -hmm. uh, and nothing's changed by the way, um, high schools are still not working. But um, in any case, this was a very long time ago. And he decided to pick 48 kids at random, 11th, 12th graders, put us in a community center, old youth center, building happened to have in the community, whatever, and pick three teachers and say, and he said to us, you guys have two years to figure out what high school should be. Just 
no, uh, there are no rules, there are no anything. You have to create all the structures and whatever. And so, speaking of circles, um, so there we were. I was 16 years old, sitting in a circle with 48 kids and three teachers. Teachers are clueless, absolutely no idea. You know, three guys, 45 years old, math, social studies, and English teacher. Not, not a clue what we're supposed to do. And, and I, I'll never forget this. You know, so we're, sit, we're sitting in the circle trying to figure out what the hell, what, 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 what's high school, what, what are we supposed to do here? We're supposed to create something. And, um, and uh, I remember in the first, four, first two months maybe, we, sitting in this big circle, we had spent two months ripping apart everything that school shouldn't be. And that's, that's not hard to do, you know, because it's such a long list about what's not working in schools. But then we found ourselves in this place of nothing, what appeared to be nothingness, that horrifying, like, nothingness, where, okay, now we've, we've ripped apart the entire thing. We know everything we don't want it to be. And now we have the task of saying, but, but what? But now it ha we have to do, be something. How are we going to become something? And so that school uh, uh, literally uh, changed my life. I mean, uh, for a lot of different reasons. But Your I, father died while you were there. Yeah, my father, my father died while I was there. And the support from the community was very important. Yeah, I, I, I think there were two things that happened in my experience in that school. You know, when you're 16 years old, as I know now from adolescence, I mean, there's, it's a tremendously important time. Uh, you know, for, for change. Um, and uh, so two things happened. One, I learned in that school that if you can think it, you can make it. I mean, because there was nothing, and then there was something. You know, there was literally nothing, and then there was something. Um, and, um, and I can remember sitting in the, uh, on, the super, on the floor of the superintendent's office listening to the teachers uh, try to figure out how we're going to get around the health requirement from the, from the state of New York. And I remember thinking, you know, and I can't remember what I had for breakfast, hardly. But I remember thinking, many, many this is 40 years ago, um, I was thinking to myself, oh, there are rules, and, they're, uh, and then people do things with these. You, you either ignore them, you change them, or you just sort of get around them. And I, I can remember thinking, wow, this is not fixed. You know, there's a way to do this. So I think those are the two, two of the three things that happened to me there. And then the third was that because my family's life was falling apart at the time, um, and those three male teachers glued me together. I mean, literally glued me together. Uh, I'm really sure I would have been a broken human being had it not been for that experience. That I remember, I left that experience saying, schools are not just places where kids learn skills. They're also hu human places where you know, you're supposed to care for those people who are there. And if I ever get to start one, I'm going to make sure that, you know, that, that the human beings there are you know, very well taken care of. So you wanted to start a school, but what you started with was uh, a project called Home. Is that correct? After you no, actually I did start a school. I ran a school for, oh. I founded and ran a school for 13 years. Is that the Beacon School or yeah. before that? Yeah. No, Beacon. I know you got, but wasn't Home before the Beacon no, School? No, Home was after. Oh, okay, tell me then. So the Beacon yeah. School, tell us about the Beacon School. Um, so Beacon is a uh, um, preschool, well, preschool now through elementary. It also had a high school, which was there for 14 years and isn't now, but it's in its 27th year, and it's a, a school which has at, at the core art, uh, art, music, dance, and drama. And um, uh, also is, it is a school where the entire curriculum is set up about, around children's development and what they need. Where um, is it? In Oakland, in, uh, right on the Embarcadero. Are you still involved with it? I'm not. But do you feel good about the direction it's taken? Um, I do, and I'm 27 years later. I'm I'm, I'm glad it's still there. Mm -hmm. So art, music, dance, and drama are the uh -huh. core curriculum. Well, it's, yeah, it's at the core of it. Yeah. Say more about that choice. Um, 
Well, um, I think that choice is, you know, I'm, I'm a non-practicing sculptor. Um, the person I was running the school with is a musician and a lot of other things, but she was a very talented musician. And I think we felt that um, one of the ways to uh, have people feel human is, is through the arts. One of the ways to connect children, some of whom might not be so good academically or whatever, is everybody gets to shine. Um, and when, you, when I used to walk into the school, you know, it was, it was just full of life, you know. And, uh, and be, mostly because of, I mean, full of life because it was children and they were, you know, they, they were in a great place. But you could feel, whenever artists came, they just, uh, you know, sort of drank it up. Because we're not living in a society in which art and music and all those kinds of things, you know, are, they're just like, uh, they're palpable especially for children. That's how they, you know, that's how they're growing and expressing and figuring out who they are and who each other is. And now, did that grow out of your trip to Italy and your experience with No, that's, how, that's, that's where home came that's from. That's yeah. how home came yeah. about. So, so after you did Beacon, that's when you took the trip to Italy and, and saw, spent time with this group of artists who were just, tell us a little about the Italian So experience. I went to, um, not knowing what I was going to do with my life at 40, um, when I left the school, I thought, okay, I'm going to be a bag lady, or I'm not, I wasn't really quite sure what I was going to do. So I ended up uh, going to Italy because I was going to help a friend put on a, uh, a retrospective of his work. And uh, ended up hanging out with 17 artists who were renovating um, what they, what, well, I didn't know what they were doing, but it turned out they, they asked me to come to their farmhouse that they were renovating, which turned out to be a 500-year-old villa. And they were trying, they were capturing on video, as they were doing this, they were capturing the old ways of doing things, you know, because they're worried, tremendous, very worried in, in Italy and all over the world, but that the old ways are going away now because of technology. And so they were renovating it in the old ways of 500 years ago. And, um, and, I, and I wanted to hang out with them, you know, for the weekend. And uh, I was, I was um, supposed to be doing, filling in the, um, what do you call it, the patio, you know, with little, uh, with dirt in between the pavers. And I was running up and down a hill, you know, and with this wheelbarrow for hours on end. I finally said to the guy, you know, actually, if you got a truck, we could do this pretty quickly. You know, we could run up the hill, we could fill up a truck and come back. And he put down his shovel and he said to me, do you have a better place to be? Do you have something else that you actually you know, need to be doing? And I said, well, no, you know, no, but, you know, I'm, I'm out, you know, in the middle of nowhere, you know, with these people. And I said, well, no. And he said, well, I'm good. Because 400 years ago, they didn't have a truck, and now you can take the wheelbarrow, and you can spend the next two days running up and down the hill, you know. And, um, and so I said, I thought, okay, and then that's exactly what I did. And I noticed over the period I was with him for a week that there were no lists, not, no list posted, no poster board, no butcher paper, no nothing. And somehow these 70 people were getting it done. You know, and the food and the art and the wheelbarrows and everything was important. You know, and nobody, I, I couldn't understand how this was working without anybody being the organizer and the, you know, and even some people took naps, you know, in the middle of the day. <laughs> and I was like, amazed. Yeah, okay. And so I, and when I left there, I came home and I said, is there a way to do this in America? Is there a way to have everything matter? Like, is there really, could we do this, you know? Um, and I took 10 friends with me about six months later back to this little, you know, this farmhouse in the countryside. And I said, come and see this and, you know, whatever. And so we went. And Ed was one of those people, actually. Uh, and we went. Ed Convoy. Ed Convoy. And we went and 
spent 10 days together with these 17 artists trying to figure out how in America we could ever do something that was like this. And that's how the organization got born, that I was, that, that I ran home. an Alameda, call home, that I ran in Alameda. So tell us about home. And so, um, and so home was a youth-led nonprofit, you know, where I said to 25 kids, um, we had an amazing superintendent in Alameda, and, and he said, I want something to happen for youth. I know that, uh, you know, for high school age kids, I know that at the core of what will make a difference for, ch for children to truly become empowered is if the power relationship between teachers and students is different. That's it. It's not about curriculum. It's not about change the schedule. It's about the relationship between teachers and um, between adults and kids. And he said, you know, make something happen. And he released 25 kids, 9th to 12th graders, uh, every day at lunch. Uh, and I have him for lunch in the uh, fifth and sixth period, and he said, make something happen. And so I said to these 25 kids, now I'm sitting there at 40, 25 kids in a circle, me and one other adult, what are we going to do? How are we going to make this happen? How are we going to make a difference in the world? How are we going to create a nonprofit? You know, whatever. And so we made it up, you know, uh, me and 20, exactly what had happened to me, you know, 25 years earlier. Um, and, uh, and they created this amazing uh, uh, organization where it was very project-oriented. So we figured out things that we could do. So the idea about action is that one of the problems that happens with, dis with empowerment or disempowerment or whatever you want to call it, people have, this empowerment word has been very overused. You know, I think now people don't even know what, we're, what are we talking about anymore. But in my world, um, the way that people understand their power, their personal power, their whatever, is, is by making something happen. Here's an idea, whatever the, your idea is. There's nothing, now there's something. And once there's something that you did with your hands with others, it's like you can't unwind that picture. I now made something happen. So in these kids, we had a bunch of, you know, insane 14-year-old boys, you know, uh, who wanted to uh, uh, build a skate park, which I thought was the, the stupidest idea that I had ever heard. And um, they started raising money, you know, selling T-shirts. And We were going to be 25 years into, you know, selling T-shirts to get this park, you know, built. And one thing led to another, and I was introduced to some people and whatever, and to make a long story short, um, these kids organized to build the largest skate park in California in nine days with 900 volunteers. Mm. And when we were building the park... You know, and then it was there. I mean, and it's still there. You know, it's 15 years old. You, you can't unring that bell. You know, and it was, it was the kids who organized 900 people. I mean, not by themselves, but, you know, to make that happen. And so the thing about action is that when we come together to make something happen is when, the, when literally the cognitive stuff that goes on for people, I think it's true with adults too, but it's... Mm -hmm. it's different with kids, with youth. You know, you can never again say in your life, that's impossible. Because something that looked impossible, it, there it is, there's a skate park. I had a group of kids who built a childcare center, opened it, ran it, and are running it. It's nine years old. You know, those are the kinds of things that I, that's where I think power or empowerment happens. It has to happen through evidence. You know, something I can now point to. I did that. I'm, you know, I'm my signatures on that thing. So at one level, it sounds like you've been recapitulating or reinventing your high school alt experience for the rest of your career. In other words, you've, you've kept going back and in different frames 
saying, how can I create a space where young people can be empowered and learn to be leaders if they are actively engaged in going from nothing to something? Mm-hmm. Is, is that a fair statement? In a I way? think that's a fair statement. And, and, and yet, you've kept inventing new things, and so presumably there's been an evolution of your experience of what works. Um, I'm not sure that's true, but I don't know if there's been an evolution of it. I think I'm taking on things that are more complex. Okay. So um, a year and a half ago, when we were just starting the Democracy Zone idea, I had a very small group of kids. We were starting to work with about six kids. And in the group was four Latino kids, one kid who was half white, half Mexican, and another kid who was half white, half African American in this group. And in the middle of this conversation, you know, we were having a conversation about how we were going to find out what people thought about democracy and blah, blah, blah. And somehow we got, they got, two of these kids got into a tremendous argument. I think it was saying, I think we were saying, well, we have to go ask the neighbors, the police, the, all different kinds of people. And this one boy said, there's no way I'm, I'm ever going to talk with the police. You know, they're horrible, they're awful, they're, every single one of them is whatever, blah, blah, blah. And there's a girl across the table, and the one who's you know half Mexican, half white kid, and she said she starts to cry. Well, you know, not, not what, what's going on. And so, well, her parents are both cops. Ah. Turns out, and she's saying, oh, and he's talking. Well, I'm going to kill the cops. And she ta- says to him, "You're talking about my my mother and my father." You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know, and I'm trying to watch them. Uh, you know, have try to have a conversation which wasn't going very well, about could they even begin to see each other's perspectives, okay? So then we, fa- so then we go through this democracy zone, we're starting to, so about, you know, right before they graduated, which was, which was you know, a month and a half ago, they're, they're in now a, com- you know, now they've found a way to each other. You know, they're actually, they work together. They're on a team together. They're thinking about things together. And the, this kid, the one who hates every cop and is going to kill them, is talking about what are we going to do when we have problems in the democracies, in the zone, in the plaza that we're building? What are we going to do when there's problems? And this boy says, well, I think the way to do this, you know, when people are not being right with each other and not listening to each other and they're not whatever is, you know, some of us should be wearing like black t-shirts or something. Now he's putting on a uniform, by the way. <laughs> um, we should, and it should say mediator or it should say something that's a signal. You know, there should be a symbol that's a signal that says, oh, well, there are people who wander around the plaza making sure things are okay and that people are being decent to each other, you know. And when, when someone comes up to you and they have that t-shirt on, you know, and so I'm, I, so... You know, here's the two kids who couldn't hardly speak to each other 18 months ago, and then here they are, you know, now talking, or here he is anyway, now talking about this is how people are going to start to listen to each other and protect each other and whatever. And so, you know, it's one thing to build a skate park, which in and of itself is really hard. <laughs> it's a, don't, I don't recommend it to anybody. Um, but it's a very different thing to, to now, very different thing, to now get people to actually want to uh, form some kind of actual connection or, or protect the space, you know, the, the environment, which is like 20,000 square feet, to protect it so that we can be okay together in it. It's much more complex. It's very, very complex. So not only are you doing more complex things, but presumably the scale is increasing too. Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. I mean, we're talking about involving 3,000 people in the... So one of the 
core questions in philanthropy and social innovation, diffusion of innovation, is the difficulty of taking great ideas to scale. Uh, Peter Goldmark, who was the head of the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, uh, has done a lot of other interesting things in his life, talks about the problem of, of bringing great things to scale, in quotes, is, is one of the largest problems he knows. Um, and I want to ask you to reflect on whether what you've learned seems to you to be lessons that other people can take to larger scale, or whether, as many people might argue, knowing you, that you bring a certain ingredient to it that is very hard to replicate. Bill Drayton, who founded Ashoka, which is an international organization of social entrepreneurs, believes that something like, I forget what it is, but 1% of the population really has the skills to be a truly effective social entrepreneur. Mm. And so I want to ask you whether, what, to what degree you feel what you've learned about creating youth leadership and building more and more complex communities has natural limits of scale that you're aware of. What are the obstacles mm -hmm. to bringing the kind of work you do to much larger scale? You know, I hate this question. Good. Because uh, I think it's the wrong question. Okay. I, I wish people would stop asking. Okay. Not just me, but right. I, you know, I'm not, nothing against you, Michael. No, I, 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 I love it that I, you hate the question. I hate the question. <laughs> I'm I think glad it's I asked a, it. I think it's a ridiculous question, mm -hmm. um, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why. First of all, there's a lot of research been done, um, a lot of research in schools and other things, that the natural community size, you know, where everyone is known, is actually 150 people. Mm. That, there's a huge amount of research out there. That once you get past 150, the whole cannot know itself. Okay? So that's just one little piece of information. But um, I think that it's a, it's a mistake to talk about scale, and it's a mistake to talk about replication. Um, because I don't think innovation comes out of replication. I think that's not, <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it's not innovation. And that what makes something come alive is that somebody has to figure out how to do it. It's in the figuring out how to do it that is what makes it so alive. So just to let you know, when I went to Italy on my, little, on my trip about dirt and pavers and all that, the second part of my trip was I went to Israel, where I had never been before. I was there during a really uh, critically important, happened to be there during the week that Rabin was assassinated. Um, and uh, a few days before that, I was at a place called Nevi Shalom, um, which is a little tiny experiment where a group of Jews uh, and Arabs wanted to figure out whether it was humanly possible for Jews and Arabs to live side by side. Like, literally, that was their question. And they didn't know the answer. It was really a question. And so, they, over the last 25 years, they built little houses in a circle, which is on a, literally like five acres. They have a circle of little, very simple houses, and in the middle is a bicultural, bilingual school. And I spent a week there. And they also have a retreat center where they bring thousands of teenagers across 20 years, you know. They bring groups of teenagers together who have never been together before. Um, and in the week I was there, coincidentally also, um, I don't remember if it was a Jewish kid or an Arab kid, one of them was killed, because, you know, they all have to be in the army, you know, and one of those children were, was killed. And still this community hung together, even though one of the side, you know what I mean? And I thought, I thought to myself, if these families can stay together 
as a community, when one of their children from the other side is killed, anything is humanly possible. And I took those experiences home, you know, not because I was going to now try to do Neve Shalom in the middle of Oakland, you know, where I was living, but because I thought, what is, what, what's going on there that they stayed together, that they held each other together, you know, through all of this. And so I, my, my interest in, in, in uh, sharing the democracy zone, should we stay funded? Should we have the chance to tell the story? And these are big questions, you know. This could all be gone in, you know, 18 months from now. Um, uh, I want to make it completely permeable. So I want to be able to say to people, come here, live with us for a week, live with us for a year, ask us a million questions, question our assumptions, uh, roll up your sleeves and get in there with the young people, come to our event, you know. Be part of this, ask the, and especially ask the really tough questions that we won't be able to ask ourselves because we're too busy doing it. And then take anything you want from this and go make something in your own community, in your own town, whatever it is. I'm not, what is it, what is it your son does? What's his, what's he's a lawyer. His? Yeah, yeah, but he's uh, inter- intellectual property. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, I, I'm not putting a copyright on these ideas. First of all, 18 other people, 18 million other people in the world already have these ideas. Mine are not particularly new. My, they, what's new is maybe how I've put it together, you know? Um, and so my interest is in having people be there, which is why I'm so interested in having Ellen, an active voice, and other people there, because when you have outsiders, quote outsiders, whether they're filmmakers or researchers or whatever it is, they, they change what you're doing it shifts because they're there. Number one, you become more conscious about what you're doing because people are asking you questions. And number two, they have input and things then shift because you thought, God, I never thought we should do it that way. Oh, I never realized what I was, you know, oh, I never, you know. So that's what I think is, if, it's go- if this is going to ripple out, you know, if, if these ideas will ripple out, it's because people came, they, sh- they shaped us. And in shaping us, they took something for themselves that they could take and make into their own thing in their own community, in their own way. I deeply understand that perspective, but since asking you questions you hate is such a productive thing to do, let me pursue it a little further. What would you say about Alcoholics Anonymous, which was, from my mind, one of the greatest social inventions of the 20th century? What would you say about the Boy and Girl Scouts? What would you say about Mothers Against Drunk Driving? It seems to me that there are many examples of social templates that are, in fact, brought to huge scale. I mean, a friend of mine was just down in Texas at, I forget what, the 60th anniversary or whatever, 85th of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. 60,000 people from all over the world coming together. You know, alcoholism was considered an incurable disease before Alcoholics Anonymous. So it seems to me that bringing some social innovations to scale is not only doable but has been done and is a fabulous model of how things go. Now, you're saying something different, which I deeply understand, which is that for your particular social innovation, you don't see it as something that replicates out like AA or Mothers Against Drunk Driving. You see it as a, a, an innovation space that others can come to see and there are certain principles mm-hmm. that you hope will be elicited by their experience that they can take home. But I would argue with you that it isn't an unfair question 
to ask what your model is. Your model, mm. as you've said, is innovation, it's not replication. But it seems to me that there are fabulous social inventions. Yeah, but you didn't ask me what my model was. Works. You asked me how to bring it to scale. Yes. I can answer the question of what do I think the model is. Okay. So but that's a different, that. that's a totally different well, question than the bringing is. it to scale. It's a t totally different yeah. question than bringing tell it to scale. Let me, let me say something about yeah. Alcoholics Anonymous, yeah. which I'm yeah. all for. You yeah. know, the, the difference, I think, I think, in, mm -hmm. in something like Alcoholics Anonymous is what, what, what people are trying to do is help people, mm -hmm. you know, to, to stop drinking and have a, different, have a healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. They are not trying to change the context of what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. That's true. Okay? Mm -hmm. I'm actually trying to, I think what we're trying to do is change the context in which children and young people and their families, whatever, are growing up mm -hmm. and trying to develop mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. it's, I'm not just focused on those individual kids. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to change what, literally, what the air is like. Mm -hmm. That's a fair distinction. You know, and so that's, that's different. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you step into the democracy zone, mm -hmm. and I don't care if it, you know, really initially, if, it, if you behave differently downtown or, you know, wherever else, but when you step in there, mm -hmm. you suddenly start to pay attention to all the children belong mm -hmm. to us, or in this place, I'm not going to be getting drunk in the middle of a, you know, in the middle of the zone, or in this place, I'm going to be respectful to anybody who walks in here, or mm -hmm. whatever it is. I'm, I, that's what I think we're trying, that's what mm -hmm. I think we're trying to do, because mm -hmm. we're, Ultimately, and the, the, the purpose of the zone is, is if, if we get to continue to do this, mm -hmm. that 10 years from now, the 2,000 children who live there mm -hmm. will not have a question as to whether or not they have options mm -hmm. for college and career and all mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm trying. So in order to do that, everything has to be different. Every single thing has to be different. It's not just, oh, let's train up the teachers. You know, let's do parent education. You know, it's what what is what's going to literally be true that so that the air has changed for those kids. So, what is the model for changing the air? Did you want to say something? Yeah. Well, I, well yeah, unless you want her to talk about yeah. the model, but I, I wanted to just mm -hmm. bring Alan in a little mm -hmm. bit on this because for me, and I think more and more people are grappling with this this question in in changing the context this recognition that you also need to change the story. Mm -hmm. mm. And that I think this issue of scalability and mm -hmm. like the social innovation fund with mm -hmm. the White House, which some people have really said that mm -hmm. should be called the scalability fund, mm -hmm. not necessarily the social innovation mm -hmm. fund. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I think increasingly story is not just uh, in, a in people who are doing different forms of engagement. It's not, again, an add-on piece. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. increasingly people are going, how does storytelling become a key part of your civic engagement strategy right from the beginning? Mm -hmm. Because if you are going to change the, the context, I think there's more of a sense that uh, things... Um, uh, uh, becoming like memes or ideas that spread that that it's it's stories that are adaptable and people can make mm -hmm. their own, and a lot of what Leslie was talking about was uh, kind of implicit was kind of how do you engage across difference, and so uh, if Ellen could talk about it because one of the things mm. that I find compelling about Active Voice and their approach to media is a real interest in uh, reaching beyond the choir. Mm -hmm. 
And so uh, I would just ask Alan to maybe That'd be wonderful. Uh, talk about that a little bit, mm. and um, because I think it's an important mm. element of mm. what how you guys proceed with what you're doing. Uh, well, uh, you know, there's lots of stories to be told tonight, but that particular opportunity with the Democracy Zone is exciting because the very nature of the neighborhood is mm -hmm. so diverse. Mm -hmm. And from what I've seen, as you mentioned, it's 50% Latino now. But there are people in the community who have lived there a long time, who are not Latino, who do not speak Spanish, mm -hmm. who are very concerned about their futures, who are looking around and not sure what's going on. So finding the stories that mm -hmm. everyone can tell to help them connect with each other Mm -hmm. is absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. And finding to change the context, I agree that there need, that communication really needs to happen. That you can't have, or it's less advantageous to have isolated narratives. When we think about working beyond the choir, and I think as media becomes more fragmented, we know that we tend to subscribe to you know, publications, we go to websites that you know, support our perspective. Mm. It's just so much easier to have your own worldview reflected back to you. It's comforting. Um, what's dynamic about Democracy Zone and on the move is the opportunity to really help everyone tap into not only their mm. other narratives, but what brings them together. Um, there are things that telling stories do that other forms of communication don't do so well. And one is, and you've talked about this, being able to document change over time, to be able to document individual transformation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So by having something like a democracy zone, like a skate park, where you actually go through something, and to be able to capture that, those are the universal elements that help people understand what other people think, how other people behave, and what their role is in shaping a kind of collective narrative. Mm. But it takes work. It doesn't happen automatically. You, it, it's hard to do that. Mm -hmm. It's going to be hard when your mm -hmm. young people begin to interview the, um, the neighbors who have been there a long time and who may have a preconceived understanding of why they're there or what is going to change. But it's also, I think, part of what's going to make things really work is mm -hmm. the ability to reach and uh, take the time to understand and find out where the common, common ground actually mm -hmm. is. And that's why I love the... the the terrestrial quality that you're working with. So it's not so abstract. It actually is a place that we can see. Mm -hmm. So let me come back to the model question. You said, as I understand you, you said that what you don't like about the replication thing is that it doesn't change the air, that that, that works for individual problems, but it doesn't change the air, it doesn't change everything that you're trying to create a context that changes everything mm -hmm. and therefore that when people come in, if I understood you, they will take their own lessons from this back to their own communities and innovate. So in that context, how should I understand the model from which you're working? Um, I think there are two, I mean, you know, when I think about it in a big sense, I think there, there are maybe three things that are, that are a must. Uh, one is that it's intergenerational, so mm -hmm. it can't just be about children and just about youth and whatever. So it's intergenerational. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, um, the fact that it's youth-led mm -hmm. is critically important mm -hmm. because people, adults in our community, will behave a little bit better in the presence of young people. Mm -hmm. um, and so that helps a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and then everybody, and people are able to learn because 
you know, there, there's no arguing with that you want children to learn. Mm -hmm. You just can't argue with that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, those are two things. The third thing is that, that our model uh, has a focus on what we call public performance. So we are help, helping young people and moms and other people with working towards, always we're working towards a project. We're working towards a goal. There is an audience. Who's the, you know, we have to know ourselves and each other and we have to understand who the audience is. So whether we're going to city council to get them to give us the space in the park to make the plaza or we're going to do a, a presentation for parents or whatever, public performance is, and, and high quality, pu quote, public performance is really, really important. And then I think the last thing is this, this idea about we have to figure it out. So we're at a place now where, all right, we've, we broke ground, you know, on this plaza. We're building a multicultural plaza and neighborhood center. Um, so we've broken ground. And so we know as soon as we, we start doing programming in the plaza, which we got input from, from numerous town hall meetings uh, run by young, young people, um, that there's going to be problems because it's a public space. You know, so all the problems that happen in any public park are going to happen. And so suddenly now, we're, this summer, we're working on, okay, well, now that we are there and building this thing, how are we going to make decisions when there's problems, of which there will be every kind of human, normal, public problem that goes on? Um, and so the part of the model, so, so we're struggling with trying to figure out what's the structure. Some people don't like the word governance. Some people don't like the word community council. Some people don't like any of it. You know, no, lots of people I'm working with don't want it to look anything like government. Whatever, whatever you do, don't have it look anything like the government that isn't working already. And so we are spending, the, you know, over the period of two to three months with young people and ourselves getting input and figuring out, well, what could the structure look like? So this idea of we're not going to go and you know, necessarily, you know, look it up in a book and get some organizational consultant to tell us how to do this. We're, we're trying to figure out what makes sense for us. So the idea that we're constructing it and then figuring that we're going to construct something that's going to look great on paper and then in two months from now it's all going to be very clear that 60% of it is horrible, doesn't work, and we have to deconstruct it, let it go, and reconstruct it. So I would say the constructing and deconstructing, mm -hmm. the constant constructing and deconstructing, uh, is is the other? It would be the fourth part of the model. Uh, and if we understand anything about preschoolers, you know, the reason they were using blocks and building things and you know, is they're literally constructing their reality. And I, so I think that it becomes really important for adults too. Uh, so the four parts are: needs to be internet generational, needs to be youth led. There's a strong public performance piece with a focus on high quality. Right. And there's a constant process of constructing and deconstructing to figure out what's going to work. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, John, I want to come back to you for a minute because um, in addition to uh, directing the Whitman Institute, you're also the board president of PACE, which is Philanthropy for Active Civic Engagement. And at your invitation, I went to a recent um, meeting of this uh, funder interest group um, and it was fascinating because although you're the only foundation in the country with a, a pure focus on process critical thinking and civic engagement how big is PACE? How many funders are part of that? Oh Well, formal members of PACE, there's uh, I think 17 mm -hmm. now. Um, there's certainly other funders who are interested in mm -hmm. civic engagement who are aren't a part of mm -hmm. PACE. There's another uh, 
group called Funders Committee for Civic Participation, mm -hmm. which is another affinity group, mo more focused on, uh, on voting um, mm -hmm. and democratic reform, maybe, than, than PACE is. Um, so it's, but the argument that PACE is trying to make for uh, the broader philanthropic community, I think, is that no matter what you're funding, to consider viewing your work through a civic engagement lens. Mm -hmm. So if you're an education funder, if you're an environmental funder, or and some are doing it already, but to intentionally be going, okay, how does civic engagement work in terms of uh, what we're what we're trying to accomplish in these in these different fields. And I heard at least two schools of thought in that meeting. One was the school of thought that if you get a community together and have a fair process in which everybody gets to express their perspective, you've done the right work. And the other is organizers who come in with a point of view mm -hmm. and they want to arrive at a specific end. And if that involves privileging low-income communities of color so that they get more of a say than others, they're trying to get, in a sense, to a specific outcome. Mm -hmm. And there's a tension between mm -hmm. those. And there's a question as to whether uh, mm. they're really ultimately yeah. reconcilable or the degree to which people can put those two things together. I think the, the, those, that tension you refer to is... Uh, is always going to be there, mm -hmm. but but I think in general in the world we live in right now, there's just a lot of tensions or mm -hmm. polarities that are always going to be there. I think the trick is how to creatively work with the tension, mm -hmm. and that even can manifest in different forms of dialogue. Where actually the best dialogue sometimes is where. There, you go where the tension is. Which often, we did today, yes. by the way. In other words, one of the most interesting parts of this is that you said, I hate that question. And I thought, huh, you know, you hate the question. And then you gave a really eloquent response, and I pushed back. And so there's, a, there's something that happens when there's, even if you're adults, right, mm -hmm. when there's oh, some yeah. emotional content yeah. on the oh, yeah, well, yeah, and yeah. I would Synapses yeah. uh, take place. And yeah. actually that's when I think... Because all of a sudden, you, you move up to the mm -hmm. edge of your seat yeah, a little bit, and there's a little <laughs> juice there. And, and I think, but I think in general, mm -hmm. the way we're socialized mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. to not be able to work creatively with tension. Mm -hmm. Either we become tension averse, mm -hmm. and we go, ooh, let's not go there, and so we miss the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Or we get too uh, emotional, mm -hmm. And don't respond, uh, you know, either too defensively or go on the attack, and again miss the learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I think often we go, oh, because I think there's a lot of tensions, mm -hmm. even around. I think democracy mm -hmm. is tension incarnate. Mm -hmm. Those tensions are always going to be there. I think I, democracy, ideally, democratic practice, ideally, is that as a community. We work creatively with the tensions that are always going to be there because we're very different people. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe we have different values and different perspectives, but mm -hmm. how do we come together mm -hmm. to creatively find space so that we move mm -hmm. into some sort of affection, effective action? Mm -hmm. I think in general right now, we don't work well with tension. Mm -hmm. 
you see that all over the place, mm-hmm. and it's certainly in the media or new. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it it's not really modeled anywhere. Mm-hmm. So again, back to the importance of story. I think that's where there's real potential. If you have stories that get people on the edge mm-hmm. of their seat, that in, involve them emotionally, then and are told in a way that people from different perspectives can enter into them. And that's where I think Ellen and Active Voice are, are, are really great at spotting the stories mm-hmm. that have that potential. Mm-hmm. And I think what you would say is those stories are often character-driven. Mm-hmm. Always. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I should say that, that it's not enough to simply tell the story. Mm-hmm. That's always great, and, and I agree with you that having storytellers come in to observe and challenge and you know, mirror uh, is, is important and, and always influential on the subjects of a story. But I think where there's also tremendous promise, which is one thing that we're very excited about that is really the core of Active Voices' work, is to take those stories and create an environment where the story becomes a kind of common text. Mm -hmm. And this is a big problem, right? Because um, unless people have some joint collective experience that they've all had together, you can... Go, they can go off and continue to exist in their own kind of siloed worlds. What media can do, and what we hope it will do with Leslie's organization, is to create something that we all observe simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So that regardless of your own experiences, your own perspective, your own life and worldview, you've now had something that you all have in common. And that's where story can be extremely catalytic in encouraging people to not only think about what they have in common, but to engage in those tensions in a productive way that moves them into it. But as long as we're fragmented and believing what we believe and having very few challenges to that, I think things don't happen and that action is really kind of stunted. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when I hire people, I'm interested in three things. And this is, this is all I'm asking these days. Okay, I'm not, I don't, your skills and your experience, whatever, that's nice. Okay, I, mean, I hope you have some and, you know, uh, you know, I hope you're rigorous and I hope you, you know, you come to work on time. But, um, there are three things I'm interested in. The most important, are you curious? This is like a dying quality, you know, curiosity. Like, literally, who are you? Are you interested in who other people are? Are you interested in yourself, you know? The second thing is about tension. How do you do with conflict and tension? Because if you don't like it and you are conflict avoidant, this is probably not a good place for you to work, you know? Uh, and then the third thing I always ask people is, how do you relate to failure? Because if you don't, if you don't like that F word, you know, this is also not going to be a good place for you because we're going to have failures. You know, because if we're pushing the envelope and we're risking enough to make a difference and to make people learn and to you know, have the thing come alive or you know, whatever, there's going to be failure. So how do you feel? Those are literally the three things that I really care about when I'm looking at hiring people these days. Beautiful. I want to open this up a little to see if there are any comments or questions from any of the folks here. Um, I have other questions I'd be delighted to ask, but I'm just curious whether this has evoked anything for any of you listening. And please don't be shy. Don't wait for somebody else to. Anybody? Yes. Um, you want well, to say your name? My name is Madeline Hope, and I um, live in West Marin, and I work with youth, and um, also. Um, work with uh, 
waist and art and um, I'm a sculptor and I've done some work at RDI oh, wow. um, and I'm wondering about the, the conversation that's happening right now I'm just um, working with young people high schoolers out here in rural West Moran um, we have one high school basically in West Moran and that's in Tamales basically so mm -hmm. even kids from Bolinas are going over the hill to Mill Valley. Kids in Point Ray Station are, it's a pretty fractured community. Kids mm -hmm. are going, some going to Tamales, which is 40 minutes away from Point Reyes, and some of them, a lot of them go over the hill to different communities in East Marin or Central Marin. Um, and a lot of what I'm interested in is working with young people out of school time so that the high school kids and the middle school can be together in Westrun. And so the common um, collective experience that a lot of these young people are having is that there's a lot of space between mm -hmm. us, those kids, and there's not a lot of common space for them to be together. And there's a real need for there to to be an organized kind of place for young people to be, whether it happens. I know there's some happening in Bellina Stinson. There's some efforts being made in Point Reyes. So I'm just wondering if there's any um, got words of advice or anything about working with young people. And civic engagement is a big part of what I, you know, a lot of, um, what I feel the adult population has really gotten comfortable with is not getting kids involved in anything because there isn't any high school in the area that's really giving the uh, parents maybe the prompt that the, your kids need to have community service or they need to do something in town. So I'm just I'm just wondering if that if being rural is a lot different than being in an urban setting where you can find pockets to like a, a community center that can be populated by teens or so just even speaking to that or it's not really a question. Okay, no, it's good. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we're not in an urban area. You know, we're in a rural area. Napa oh, is. Oh, you're in we're rural. In Napa. Okay, yes. I'm, I'm okay, Napa. so yeah, you are rural. I'm Excuse way me, rural. I'm sorry. I'm thinking um, but we don't have. But you know, our yeah. kids are our high school kids are walking three blocks to the you know to the neighborhood center. It's right. very physically close, which is okay. sounds different, and it, that's a huge challenge. It is. You know, I mean, it's just a huge challenge because I think that if we didn't have kids as a captive audience, starting with fifth and sixth period, mm -hmm. and then they stay on and do lots of things, but if mm -hmm. we didn't have them. It, you know, our kids get academic credit for all of this work that they're doing right. in the community. It would be really, really hard to figure out what to do for teenagers, for, mm -hmm. for adolescent population. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. That would be really, really hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Yeah, yes. I, I, have, I have three questions. Yeah, please. Uh, the first one is what happened at that 10-minute presentation with Levi Strauss. <laughs> 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 really about if you could um, expand on the idea of it's not enough just to tell story because um, I work with kids. Madeline runs the Artist in Schools program through Gallery Route 1 and I'm one of the Artist in Schools okay. and I work in media and work with storytelling and we'd like very much to hear more about mm. your thoughts on that. And um, 
and, and as part of that story is common text and how to really engage in that and with that and in the idea of engaging in difference through that medium because what we're finding in this community is the same thing you have huge difference, huge one group here, one group there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the, it seems like and we don't engage with it in our art teaching right now because our art teaching is more about environmental but what's happening is this cross-cultural Mm -hmm. um, encounters and it seems to be happening within the kids like the hmm. adults are all kind of doing their thing and but within the school system that's where hmm. those two cultures are actually kind of coming together and and rubbing and I'm not a parent so I don't see that clearly but anyway those are my three mm -hmm. questions. Want to start Leslie? Yeah our 10-minute presentation turned into 40 <laughs> um, and the kids did exactly what they said they were going to do, which is to go in to tell the story of the iceberg. Uh, I mean, I said, you know, what am I going to do? It's six of them and one of me, and they had decided that this is really what they wanted to do. And that, it, and they told the story, and it was a really compelling story, and then we ended up staying for 40 minutes and having lots of questions about all of our work. So that's what happened with that. And it worked. The and it worked. I mean, it worked. It was very, yeah, yeah it was very, it was very, it was very wonderful. Um, I wanted to say one thing, and then I know Ellen will answer the question about context. You know, um, I, I, this is a whole diatribe which I will not go into, but, you know, the schools are really broken. You know, generally speaking, public education is, is just broken in so many, in every way, in every way I can think of. Um, and um, so the reason I think why we can have uh, cross-cultural, you know, conversations and people can begin to listen to each other and the kid who's arguing with the kid whose parents are cops and you know all that is because we have taken them out literally physically out of the high school they're in our academy in the neighborhood and there are a bunch of adults who know how to do this and care a lot about it and are setting up lots of situations for people to have that but mm -hmm. in the regular public school setting where there is number one no time number two little training and number three you know little motivation you know, teachers can't just do this on their own, right? They, again, I, I think it's really, really, really hard. Mm -hmm. Really, really hard. And part of the, this goes back to the reflective conversation. So, you know, I run these groups for young leaders, and we ran one uh, with Latino moms and one white mom, monolingual Spanish moms and one English-only white mom in a, in a group, in a leadership group, you know? And speaking of story, and I, and, and we spend a lot of time trying to build the trust, you know, so people can have these kind of the conversations, the important conversations, or even ask each other questions about each other, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And I'll, you know, Ellen knows the story, but I, there was this moment where we had a funder up there meeting with the moms group about she wanted to know what are you learning, you know what I mean? And one Latino mom says to the white mom in Spanish. Um, and then it was translated, you know, because that's how we had to do this. Um, she says, I want to tell, the white mom was saying, I think I've held back the group by being the only English-speaking person, and it slows everybody down. And the moms were saying, no, no, that's not true. We need you here because you're the beginning of the bridge. Mm -hmm. We don't have a bridge. You're the first, you know. And the Latina mom says to the white mom, I've lived here 10 years, and you're the first white person who, uh, who when you looked at me, I didn't think you were looking at a strange bug. And I thought, just for the mom to say that to the other mom, you know, it seems like such a small, tiny thing, but that they could go there. But, you know, there has to be an environment set up where those kinds of things can really happen, 
you know? So, anyway. Well, that also also speaks to, I think, your point you made earlier, which I think is key in storytelling as well as in organizing um, and development, which is that notion of vulnerability. I mean, that's an extremely candid thing mm. to say. It's painful to hear. Mm -hmm. And that's what it is that touches those of us that hear it. It's that moment when we can see that, we can feel it, that's a dynamic, and we suddenly have a new understanding of what's at stake in that relationship. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, is, for the work that we do, absolutely essential to the powerful storytelling. Now, I should say, is that to differentiate what we do, we don't work with vernacular storytelling, in which uh, there are people and organizations that really focus on helping individuals tell their story in a small, facilitated setting. And that can be very powerful. I'm not an expert on that, but I think it's partially what you do. We work with very carefully constructed stories. But when we work with them, we... Um, have trained facilitators who actually go out into group settings with these stories, usually on video. Uh, and again, they're not didactic. They are really human. They are really moments that capture mm. intimacy and capture complexity and capture uh, a dynamic about relationship that help you understand something about people that you might have thought with the other. And in fact, they really help you walk in their shoes. Mm -hmm. But they're narratives and they, they work as moments of real beauty and, and art, but they're also something that people can now begin to communicate with specifically. So, but I think those are really, there's so many, um, just as um, the, world of, the word empowerment has so mm. many different definitions, storytelling does as well. That said, we think that when you have that kind of narrative and you're able to draw people out, to ask questions that are really mm. designed to elicit things that are on people's mind but not articulated mm. easily, that where you're willing to have the tension come up through something that's not my story and it's not your story, it's someone else's story. We think that's going to be, we, we think that's very powerful. So we do work with organizations and, and communities around the country. The Shelbyville story that I mentioned earlier about this town in Tennessee, which is um, funded by the Because Foundation and made by a filmmaker named Kim Snyder, that's a story that we're going to be taking to policy forums, to faith-based networks, to schools, wherever there's an interest in figuring out how the impact of 37 million immigrants in this country changing who we are, changing our communities, that story is going to be very helpful because it's not the story of West Marin and it's not the story of Oakland and it's not the story of Long yeah, Island. Mm -hmm. It's the story of Tennessee, but it will begin to elicit the kind of concerns and the kind of opportunity that people see in that narrative. But there is something to be said for these, the whole brain, those who tell stories of their own and those that use somebody else's story. Mm -hmm. Other questions, comments? Anybody? No? Don't be shy. All right. Good. Um, you know what? I wanted to, yeah. when, after Ellen just said what she said. So, I, that no, you I hated? Gonna, no, 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 no. I was gonna. I, what I was gonna say was that I was gonna say that Ellen just. What Ellen just said solves my scalability story. My scalability answer. So that if if we end up figuring out what to do, then the, the scalability is Ellen will help us figure out how to get the story out so people can use it. But you know, uh, over the you know one of the difficulties in, in being uh, me or my organization or you know the organization I run is that Ellen can say to me. You know, your your story is a global story. People need to know this story. They, you know, they need to not just know it in this country or in southern, in northern California, whatever. They need this is a global story.
but she can, I can't say that about my own story. I, I, maybe some people can, you know, but I am. I, some people can and do. Well, some people can <laughs> and do. Wrong. Some, <laughs> some people can and do, but I don't. I'm not. No, it's you know an what I mean? essentially narcissistic personality structure. Okay, sorry. Well, right. But that's not me, you know. Yeah, so right. it's like, well, I, so I say to Ellen, okay, well, maybe that, maybe you think that's true, and maybe it is true. So go out and tell people. But it, it doesn't. I don't. I'm. I'm. I'm literally like two years into this. You know, this is a 10-year minimum, 10-year minimum to figure out if anything we're going to do is going to really make a difference. <laughs> so I can't say, you know, even if I, I have great evaluators, I have, you know, what is that thing called? Uh, what do they call that? Logic theory. Uh, no, no, no. Theory change. Huh? Theory change. And logic models. Logic theory. models. I have all of it, okay? I have 35 funders. Everybody wants a different one. I've got them all. <laughs> I have good evaluation data. I still, I can't stand on that yet. I, I cannot stand on that yet. And in terms of what's meaningful, I don't want to see the logic model. I want to hear that high schooler. I want to know about their family. I want to know what the right. person next door is. And I think that's, you know, and I, I actually appreciated your question about replication scalability, but I think what's so powerful about the story of what you're doing for others is not about the mechanics or even the model. It's about possibility. Yeah. It's about seeing that people who, you know, didn't know what they had to offer each other and didn't know what they had in themselves mm -hmm. came into relationship with each other and changed the world. And that's where people begin to draw on the power of narrative. That simple act of knowing that it's doable and it's possible, and it really felt pretty great for those skate park builders, that's inherently magical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. John. Well, and just one other, it's maybe going off on a little tangent, but it, it, it's another tension when you mentioned uh, how long this might take. Because on a very practical level, mm -hmm. um, these kinds of things, they do take time. Uh, and and uh, uh, funders or the people resourcing tend to have short attention spans. So... Talk about construction and deconstruction. Mm -hmm. I think there's this, on a, on a macro level, this happens all over the place. Things get going, mm -hmm. and then if there's a failure, then you're definitely out of there. You know, so um, it makes it very hard to really get momentum that will capture compelling stories that show what communities can do when they have the resources and the time to build relationships, to experiment, to learn from failure. And that tension, is, it's very real, and it's, and it's right there. And um, I think it's why, you know, sometimes, you know, we ask, why aren't we farther along than we are? And everybody's talking about innovation. And, and, and one of the key ingredients that's missing is this, I think, this piece about failure, is we have no, we haven't figured out how to publicly talk about what went wrong. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so we, there's, the, there's this whole, everybody talks about let's learn from mistakes, and yet we work in a system that completely uh, creams you resource-wise. You, so, so there's all this data that's not being captured because everybody understandably wants to look good. 
And, and that's another tension. How do, you, how do you innovate when there's no space to talk about what didn't work with the experiment? Does that make yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I want to, and I just want to, you know, I, 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 I want to give an example because we had, we, had a, we had a storytelling project. You know, somebody came up from another organization to help us put together a magazine. You know, first youth voice magazine. And okay, this does, sounds great. And we made a huge mistake, huge mistake, which, you know, should have learned. I can't believe it. This, 35 years into this, I'm still making these kind of mistakes. But anyway, I did. And we didn't sit down with the, the organization to work out all of our agreements about how we were going to do this. We were just so thrilled. They were coming mm -hmm. up to teach kids how to write stories and put together a zine, you know. Okay. So we, this goes on for a semester. Kids are writing stories. These people are whatever, uh, you know, helping them write. And, and we ha our public performance for the magazine is it's going to come out on the day of the groundbreaking. You know, okay, here's, what, here's what's going to go on. And the night before the thing, the night before the groundbreaking, um, the magazine shows up in box, you know, 1,500 copies, $1,500, uh, shows up in boxes, and we take it out. And, you know, myself and a couple of adults are sitting around, and all of a sudden there's a couple of kids sitting at the table with us, and they have the, z the zine in their hands. They open it up, and they said, uh, we got a problem with this. Mm -hmm. I'm like... Really? You know, I sort of had looked through it. It looked kind of cool to me and, you know, whatever. And so, yeah, we, we have a big problem with this magazine. What's the problem? And they're telling me, I don't like this poem. I don't like this story. I don't get how it relates to democracy. I don't, this doesn't represent me. Our name is all over it. Whatever. And then all of a sudden, now there's six kids sitting at the table. You know, and suddenly, you know, we're, and this is six o'clock in the evening, the night before the groundbreaking, the magazine is also supposed to come out. Now the kids who worked on the magazine start to sit down, and they're like, well, actually, we didn't really get to say what was going in this magazine. Then a staff person says, well, I have a problem with the fact that two of the pregnant girls are all over the front cover of the magazine. And so, um, and so, and the funder has shown up from New York, and he's going to be there the next day, you know, in the, okay? And at, at 8 o'clock in the morning, 10 of us, adults get together in my living room to try to figure out what in the hell are we going to do about this. We've spent $1,500. We've got 1,500 copies. Who's going to make a decision about this? You know, is it the kids to make the decision? Whatever. And I said to the funder, if you want to see how it really goes, show up at 8 o'clock in the morning at my house because here's, you want to watch something fall apart. Here it is. Okay. He did. You know, I have staff crying because they didn't really speak up and they should have and why didn't we? And then other staff crying because they didn't really support the... And then we had a whole process we had to put together in 45 minutes about how to get the input from the kids about who was going to make the decision, how we were going to make this happen. So I was willing to invite the funder and open up the process and let everybody see that we had really had not thought this through and how were, what were we going to do. And where people went, which is another thing about this democracy zone, and I think what's happening in our country, in our society, whatever it is, we're always looking for the higher authority outside of ourselves to tell us what to do and solve the problem. So the first response that the staff person had was, well, let's, you know, we should have shown the principal of the school. Maybe she'll make the decision about what we should do. Oh, we should have, you know, talked to the funder because their name is on, you know. Let's do anything that doesn't have to do with us. Somebody else has, is the higher authority. It's the police. It's the priest. It's the principal of the school. And I think what we're trying to do with our young people in the democracy zone is say, Actually, there's nobody else to turn to. It really is, this is back to tension. Mm -hmm. It really is for us to sit together and figure out what are all the options and what are we going to do. And that's, 
hard because many, most of us, many people want to run from that. When the heat, when it gets hot in the room and all we have is each other, we just have to sit in it to figure out, first of all, to not try to blame each other, to not try to beat ourselves to death, and, and to say, how are we going to move forward? But I think that, you know, it's an example of when things go wrong. Things, but those kids learned more, and so did we, from the mistake of how we hadn't thought the process through than if the magazine had been perfect and distributed and whatever else, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, really, the learning was all about yeah. what are we going to do? We shot part of that scene, um, and I've just seen the rough footage, but, but lest it sound too barbaric and, and difficult, there was amazing tenderness in that meeting. And there's a moment when I think, I don't know, I guess he's one of the teachers, is explaining uh, to the students, and I don't know how the decision was arrived at, we may, we have, may have shot that as well, that they're not going to actually distribute it. And there's a moment of just, you know, like, very thick emotion as the camera pans Mm. from people in the circle. And the teacher says, you did nothing wrong. Mm. You did everything right. And that's the stuff, that's the sticky, powerful, you know, relational, uh, you know, honesty that is so powerful about seeing th- these decisions that are being made in front of your very eyes. And, and tremendous caring about brutal things that mm-hmm. happen um, that is so much a part of the community that you've created. Mm. I'd love last comments from each of you, maybe starting with you, Ellen, just last reflections on our conversation today. Anything that has been evoked or emerges for you? Well, I, I think it's... I love hearing your, your questions and, and how these ideas resonate. I think any of you, from what I've heard, could have been up here to tell your own story, to talk about your own ideas. Um, and what I like about what you do, Michael, at the New School is create the space for conversation because even though it may sound like a luxury, uh, we don't do it enough. And the opportunities to really step back and think about what matters and to to capture that in a way that resonates is, is, is extremely powerful. So I have um, so much belief in these kind of interdisciplinary opportunities where philanthropy and activism and education and media come together. I think that's the future. I really believe that. I think that the, way, the ways that we've worked previously in kind of silos, carefully protected, for good reason, it's so much easier. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Is, is starting to fade, and I think we should embrace that. So it's always, you know, very inspiring to see how working together is actually quite powerful mm-hmm. and how many different ways that can happen. Thank you. Uh, I think I kind of related to that, but just you know, a, a big question also right now a lot of people are asking is, especially around different types of engaging across difference and dialogue and is... People have shown you can do that. You can. There's the technology and the models that you can bring people together and they can have a good conversation. The big question now is how do you get beyond those temporary engagements to actually embedding these processes in communities uh, and, and organizations? And so 
I find the democracy zone work because I think that's exactly the question they're exploring is actually embedding these processes in a community, and the and I think the the space you mentioned is crucial. But I'm also intrigued at the role that physical space plays in this notion of embeddedness, and because I think actually it is important, and that people come to associate a space with a way of being. And, and that maybe when they step into this place, there's an agreement. We, we're going to maybe act a little differently with each other than maybe we normally do. And so I'm really in, intrigued because they're building a new community space. And I, so I think that's an unfolding part of the story. And then I would also just say that's why I'm intrigued with what you're doing here at the new school as common wheel here as physical space that people come to associate with a, a type of dialogue and reflection and thinking because um, I think I think it is a really key part of answering that question of how do we embed these processes in communities um, uh, I write every morning um, this morning I was writing about thinking about coming here today and I was writing about the connection between generosity and gratitude. And I was thinking about what comes first. Mm -hmm. Is it that you're generous and out of that you feel gratitude or you have then invoked gratitude in somebody else and then it passes on or is it the other way around? It doesn't matter. And, so, and I thought to myself this morning, no matter what happens today, no matter who's here today, um, that I feel tremendous gratitude uh, for the three of you in different ways saying yes to me and my work um, because I, I can't do it alone. I mean, I know that. I wouldn't try. It's not, you know, I, I'm not even interested in that. So I'm just full of uh, gratitude for you and for everybody who's here today. Thank you. It's interesting that, to me, that your model, Leslie, of... Uh, I actually agree with you that... Um, replication is not something that I've ever been good at uh, and that we work with as you know a dozen different programs here each of which has its own model of social change and each of which has had quite extraordinary impact and outreach but I'll just talk for a minute about the one I'm struggling with right now which is we've done these week-long retreats for cancer patients for the last uh, 26 years here. We've done 153 of them. And I know that these retreats completely transform the lives mm -hmm. of the eight people who come. But we only do six a year. So we only have 48 people a year come through. And one of the things that we haven't been able to figure out is how to make this quality of experience available to much larger numbers of people. And um, so the question is whether we are trying to develop a model that can be replicated and brought to scale, or whether that's essentially impossible. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we don't know the answer to that yet. And, and another dimension of the question is how much sacrifice of quality are we willing to make to reach much larger numbers of people? So 
this week-long intensive really transforms the lives of the people who come. But it's an incredibly expensive model. And, you know, it's like sort of neurosurgery with the human soul in a certain way. Um, you know, it's just like a deep process of self-exploration that, that takes place in this, in this context. So, so for myself, I agree with you that the stuff that interests me the most is when, and I think perhaps how we will proceed, is to invite people in and to say to people, this is how we do it. And we want to make our experience available to you in the hopes that you will take some of this back into your communities and reinvent this deep healing work in ways that, that you develop and so that we can learn from you. So there's a virtuous circle of you know, these explorations. Oh, I want to just make a comment yeah, about this. This yeah. is a funny, funny mm -hmm. or strange or unusual small story mm -hmm. that brings what you just said full mm -hmm. circle. Um, you know, when I was 16 or 25 or 36 or mm -hmm. even 40, I really thought the world was going to be different by the time I left it. And now mm -hmm. I know that um, in a big way it isn't. Mm -hmm. And um, people say to me, Yes, but it's one person at a time. You know, mm -hmm. don't you know how many people you've impacted, blah, 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 but I'm not keeping a score, score board for my work. But my significant other's wife was dying. And she came here for a retreat 23 years ago. And it changed her and her daughter and my significant other's lives. And so I listened to your story and I say, I don't know about thousands of people. I only know about Anne and what happened for her here 23 years ago. Leslie Medine, John Esterly, Ellen Snyder, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you, Michael.